Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A congressional commission has had a look at how well America is defending itself against hackers, particularly the state-sponsored kind. The short answer? Not very well. We take a look at the changing nature of cyber attacks and of cyber defense. And imagine a future in which the pandemic is in the past. How will it be remembered? commemorated. We examine what museums are doing now to capture and depict this historic period. But first... America is racked by its most widespread, sustained unrest in more than half a century. A week ago, Derek Chavin, then an officer with the Minneapolis Police Department, knelt on George Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes as he pleaded that he could not breathe. Mr. Floyd's death has unleashed a simmering anger across the country. In at least 75 cities, protests have ignited over the past several days. Both the demonstrations and the police response have been growing steadily more violent. Governors in at least 11 states have called in the National Guard. The unrest reached as far as the White House, prompting the Secret Service to sequester President Trump underground. Minnesota's governor, Tim Walz, said that calming protests was merely the start of a reckoning. If we do not get to that systemic problem, eventually this will get us back to a point that led to our communities on fire, our security and safety in question. The anger prompted by Mr. Floyd's death has not only spread beyond Minnesota, it spread around the world, to Berlin, to Milan, to Mexico City, to London. And it's unclear how much it will continue to consume America. Over the weekend, there's been more civil unrest, a lot of curfews in American cities that have been broken. There's been more violence, including arson and looting in many places. John Prudeau is The Economist's US editor. There's also been a lot more force used by the police. Some of it looks very over the top. So a protest that started against excessive police violence seems to have resulted in greater police violence. And why do you think that is? Why, why do you think the, the protests seem only to be escalating and spreading? Well, I think part of it, in some cities at least, is the way this has been policed with very heavy-handed sort of riot police tactics, rubber bullets, tear gas, and so on. That's not a very smart way to meet a protest about police violence. And I think the, the second thing is that while the protests have been largely you know, sort of nonviolent and conducted in the right spirit, 
It's also true that some people have used them as an opportunity to, to loot, to start fires. You want to try and distinguish between the protests and, and the violent civil unrest. But I think the longer this goes on for, the harder it is to, to make that distinction. And, you know, in political terms, at least, the two get squashed together in a way that I think is pretty unhelpful for the cause that the protests started out by championing. And why do you think it is that Mr. Floyd's death has sparked such widespread protests? Part of it is just down to the existence of the video, which anyone who's seen you know, knows what's there. It's, it's very shocking. A, you know, the video's graphic and it's very clear what happened. B, actually, the officer who's responsible for George Floyd's death has been charged with murder already. And so that immediate demand for justice for George Floyd, in a sense, is being met but these protests are also happening, of course, at a time when African-Americans have been hit disproportionately hard by COVID-19 in a way that has reminded people in America and elsewhere of inequalities in American life that run very deep. Well, the Minneapolis police officer re- responsible for this has been charged, but people are still clearly furious. They, they see this situation happening again and again, and they, they charge that America's police forces, at least some of them, have systemic racism. What's, what's your take on that? Yes, I think that's right. You can't look at that video and not think that that's the case. Often what happens when you have incidents like this is that people say, oh, well, it's a few bad apples. That bad apples theory hasn't held up particularly well. I think when you get killings like the one in Minneapolis, it tends to point to you know poor training of police officers. Minneapolis's police departments had you know, problems like this going way back. You know, I think there are probably specific things in addition to the sort of charge of systemic racism going on here. Well, then, then, then what's to be done? If it's more complex than that, then, then what's the solution? Well, I'll point to a couple of things. Despite the general picture of sort of depression at, at the moment, actually there are a lot of police forces in America that used to kill lots of unarmed people, unarmed African-Americans in particular, that now don't do so. I'd point to Los Angeles's police force, which is much better than it used to be. You know, huge reforms after the Rodney King riots there in the early 90s. Seattle's police force, Las Vegas's police force, New York's police force, actually, which you know seems to perform very poorly over the past few nights, has improved a huge amount compared with what it was like, you know, sort of 10, 15, 20 years ago. And the improvements seem to be to fairly simple things like training police officers rather than training them, you know, how to keep people in chokeholds for as long as they can, how to de-escalate potentially violent situations. And there are even really small things like New York's police force started counting the number of rounds that police officers discharged from, from their guns. Just that simple measure made police officers in New York more reluctant to fire their weapons. So I think while, you know, kind of racism in American policing is a big sort of knotty problem that is really hard to fix and and maybe goes quite deep, there are actually specific things that can be done and the picture's not at all as hopeless as you might think. And what's President Trump's role in all this? He He's clearly not taking the typical presidential role of, of calling for unity. I'm afraid I think the politics of all of this, the longer it goes on, might work well for President Trump. If you think back to President Trump's inauguration, he came in saying that he was going to halt American carnage 
I think the longer protests go on and, and the harder it becomes to distinguish the protests from the civil unrest, the more the politics of this change. The protests that initially often start for very good reason, I mean, think right back to the 68 protests starting because the assassination of Martin Luther King, as they drag on, can become perceived more generally as just an outbreak of lawlessness that the government needs to squash. And at that point, you know, the sort of Richard Nixon 1968 law and order appeal becomes much more powerful politically. And I think the politics of this start to work better for President Trump. And I'm sure, at any rate, he would rather be talking about this um, than about COVID-19. But it's gone unusually uh, beyond even America's borders this time. We've seen uh, protests in, in London and Berlin and Mexico City and, and beyond. The, the world seems to have caught some of this fire. Why, why do you suppose that is? And, and do you think that matters? I think that tells you something about how media works these days. I mean, the existence of this video, which is so clear and has been so widely shared and has been viewed by people all across the world, I think it's made people, you know, in Berlin and London almost as cross as it's made people in Minneapolis. And people want to find some way of expressing that anger. So with all that in mind, how do you see this ending? I mean, in, in, in recent examples, this has been a matter of a few weeks of protest before they die down. Do you, do you see that same sort of timescale here? Or has the, has the world changed in such a way that this is set to get bigger still? It's really hard to know. And I think it's partly hard to know because of COVID-19. I mean, ordinarily, you might expect after a few weeks, you know, people kind of get back to work and get back to their normal lives. Normal life at the moment in America is so abnormal that it's hard to see that happening. So we might be in for a long summer of protest and riot. I hope not, obviously, but, but that's possible. It's also possible that it just fizzles by next weekend. I think it's very, very hard to predict. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. In the latest episode of The Economist Asks, our interview show, Award-winning chef and restaurateur Marcus Samuelson reflects on his experiences as a black man and business owner who chose to make his life in America. There's so much anger. There's such, so much false narrative there. There is so much generational racism and debt that has to be dealt with there. But I do think that George Floyd, you know, the fact that people are engaging in it hopefully will lead to change. My heart goes out to his family. And it highlights that the world does not look the same for all of us, right? Listen to the whole conversation with Marcus Samuelson on The Economist Asks, wherever you listen. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. 
Check it out. Gone are the days that the biggest army or fanciest fleet determines a country's ultimate military might. Hostile nations can wreak havoc on an enemy without a single boot on the ground. State-sponsored hacking threatens economies, elections, state secrets, and business empires. The coronavirus pandemic has made the threat of cyber attacks even more pronounced. And America, already known to have suffered from Russian election meddling, is rethinking how to defend itself against such attacks. A new commission called the Cyberspace Solarium Commission has just published a report essentially concluding that America is very bad at defending itself in cyberspace. And that's a problem. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. It's a problem particularly because of the attacks that we're seeing occurring now. And what attacks are they? Well, there's lots of COVID-19 related cyber criminality. People are working from home. They're more receptive to scams. They may be clicking on links where they wouldn't have previously. So there's a sort of undercurrent of cyber criminality. But we're also seeing all sorts of state-sponsored activity. A few weeks ago, we had the FBI and the UK authorities warn that China was attempting to hack into COVID-19 related intellectual property from things like pharmaceutical companies. That's part of a much broader wave of state-sponsored cyber cyber activity aimed at all kinds of things, from espionage to stealing trade secrets to probing election systems, all the way up to disinformation, hacking, leaking, embarrassing emails or information designed to sway elections in other ways. Cyber activity is a means to pursue all sorts of old-fashioned geopolitical ends. And how do state-sponsored attacks like those you describe differ from those of the sort of low-level cyber criminals? State-sponsored attacks tend to be more sophisticated. Good cyber attacks involve a lot of reconnaissance, really understanding the networks that you're penetrating. And states have the resources, they have the tools, they have the manpower available to do that. Many sophisticated cyber attacks use exploits that are not publicly known until they've been used. They often involve a range of targets, including government networks, military networks, but also private companies that have very valuable trade secrets, whether those are medical secrets like vaccine development for COVID-19, or whether they're military secrets like aircraft designs. And the commission has concluded that America is not very well prepared for those. The commission says that American defences are a bit scattershot. In some way, it reminds me of the same criticisms that were levelled at American intelligence agencies before the 9-11 attacks. They had lots of information, but they didn't share it, and they kept it in different silos. What we have today is that responsibility for cyber defence in America is scattered amongst lots of agencies. The FBI, the National Security Agency, which does eavesdropping, the Pentagon Cyber Command, the Department for Homeland Security, and all sorts of others. So what the commission says is that you should have a single national cyber director, essentially inside the White House, and it would coordinate all of these defences in a meaningful way. It also says that you should have a permanent congressional cybersecurity committee that would be able to hold the government to account on all of this. And really importantly, it says that you have to work with the private sector, which is where lots of this hacking is ultimately taking place. How does that actually look in practice? How can authorities carry out those recommendations? Well, there's lots of recommendations. One of them, for example, is that some private servers, like those that manage energy, financial, telecoms industries, are labelled as critical infrastructure, and they would get extra government monitoring in exchange for meeting more stringent security standards. It also recommends that 
the government build a platform that's managed by the NSA in which government agencies and private companies could share information about threats in a very sort of confidential way. Now, the obvious retort would be, hang on a minute, companies may not be wild about sharing information about their internal systems with the very agency that's responsible for industrial scale spying. But a similar system does operate in the UK with Britain's Signals Intelligence Agency. And it's possible that this could be seen as an effective way to protect yourself against more and more powerful cyber attacks. It's a matter then of government agencies and all of these different actors building better walls. That's part of it, but it's not the whole story. The commission essentially says that the best form of defence in some cases is attack. So if you cast your mind back to the Russian election hacking in 2016, there was a real sense amongst American officials that America was getting soft, that they hadn't shown adversaries that they would punch back. And the commission effectively says American hackers need to strike back with speed and agility. The way that American agencies have translated that into policy is a pair of ideas. One of them is called persistent engagement, and that's the idea that this isn't just waiting for attacks to come to you. This is a sort of constant struggle with your enemies at all times below the threshold of conflict every day, day in, day out. And the second idea is a really interesting one called defend forward. It's comparable to the idea that you don't sit there and wait for an enemy to come to your shores. You send the Navy out to theirs. And in the same way, American hackers should be operating inside Russian systems, inside Chinese systems, watching attacks come out and stopping them at source before they get inside the American networks. It's a kind of attack to defend idea. I mean, this is a pretty worrisome assessment to get as we find ourselves here at the beginning of an election cycle. It is. There are lots of jitters about what Russia may attempt in 2020, about the vulnerabilities America has in such divided times. But there are some indications as to how groups like the NSA, Cyber Command, might already be thinking about the problem. And I think there are some really interesting clues from back in 2018, when America was defending the midterm elections that year. And what we saw is that Cyber Command sent individual text and email messages to Russian operatives, warning them that America was tracking them. In other words, a kind of digital horse's head in the bed. It was saying, we know who you are, we know what you've been doing, and if you think you can intervene in our elections and get away with it, believe me, it won't be as easy as 2016. And that kind of reaching out and touching foreign hackers, I think is something we should be looking very carefully at in terms of American cyber defense coming up to this year's election. Shishong, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. The times we're living through are, it's been said so many times before, unprecedented. They're historic. So museum curators, the gatherers of the stuff of history, want to collect what will help future generations understand this pandemic. But when the virus has affected everything, anything could become a historical artifact. Where to begin? For museum curators, you would think this would be quite easy. There's lots of stuff to collect. There's a seemingly endless supply of stuff to collect. Leo Marani is a Britain correspondent at The Economist. But actually, it's a lot harder to document history while you're also living through it, because it's not immediately clear what is long-term value and what is important only for the moment. So I'll give you an example. In Britain, at the start of this whole thing, a letter was sent out from the Prime Minister's office to every single household in the country. That's about 30 million letters, basically saying you must stay at home. 
So for some museums, this is an important historical artifact, but for others, it's not. And the tricky bit is making that decision. So why is the ethos while things are so unclear, not just simply to grab everything that's available? That's clearly a temptation. And one of the curators of one of the museums I spoke to said exactly that. It's a huge temptation. Uh, But there's lots of problems with that. To begin with, it costs money to store things. You don't want to have a bunch of stuff that you don't need. Some things you don't want to be collecting immediately, like PPE or face masks. You know, that stuff is actually needed out in the real world, so they need to wait. Also, it's surprisingly difficult to get rid of stuff once you have it in a collection, especially public collections, because those are governed by law. So there's only a set number of conditions under which you can actually remove something from a collection forever. But fundamentally, I mean, what you have to remember here is that the curator's job is to make these decisions. The curator's job is to curate. And I suppose different curators are, are, are overseeing different kinds of collections. Absolutely. So if you're the British Museum, for instance, you need to think about your collection in really very, very broad terms. But there's lots and lots of museums that are focused on a particular subject, right? So the National Army Museum, they're looking at what the army in Britain has done in this crisis. The Florence Nightingale Museum is looking at the emergency hospitals that were put up in a matter of days, which were called Nightingale Hospitals. Also, the point is you need to have a story around an object. You can't just collect things bereft of context. So, for example, the Science Museum curator said to me that rather than just have a ventilator, you'd want to talk to the medical team that used that ventilator or perhaps the patient who used the ventilator. Because the whole point of museums is that they tell you stories, not just that they show you objects. Well, what about the stories of all the things that aren't happening? One of the hallmarks of of this crisis is lots of things that we would normally expect to be going on aren't. How, How do you document that? Yeah, so that's that's actually really interesting. So I had a chat with the National Football Museum in Manchester. Obviously, there's no football going on at the moment. They've sort of been documenting the absence of something. They've been collecting programs from cancelled games or kit from the cancelled Euro 2020 championship. They've, they've been collecting minutes from the Football Association and also what people are doing instead of playing football. So one football club sent in pictures of the squad delivering food and activity packs in their local areas, or also what individuals, you know, football isn't just about Premier League clubs, it's also about games at the weekends, games that we all play. So the stories of what people are doing instead of playing football, it won't surprise you to know that one of the things people are doing is playing a lot of football-themed video games. And, and what about your own curatorial interests? What are, you, what are you keeping to remind yourself of all this? Well... Like the Science Museum, I have a copy of the letter from the Prime Minister, an assorted paraphernalia like that. I've been taking some pictures of the signs on shop windows telling us that they're closed because of because of all this, which is also something that the Victorian Albert Museum, a design museum, is looking at. And apart from that, I also appear to be collecting, somewhat to my distress, a fair number of kilograms. Leo, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Want truly hydrated skin? Mito Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. 
It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.